Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So hello, everybody. Um, welcome back to New Books in Journalism. Um, I'm Kate Edenborg, the host of this channel. Um, and today we'll be talking to Matt Pearl about his book, The Solo Video Journalist, Doing It All and Doing It Well in TV Multimedia Journalism. Um, so Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Matt, um, I wonder if you could start off this interview by letting us know a little bit about yourself, if you would. Absolutely. So I work as a solo video journalist for the NBC affiliate in Atlanta, Georgia, WXIA-TV. I've been there for about eight years. And basically what the term solo video journalist means is a reporter who shoots and edits his or her own stories. It is one of the fastest rising positions in television news, specifically local television news. And it has become commonplace in smaller and mid-sized markets and is just now starting to become nearly as common in larger markets like Atlanta. So I've been working in Atlanta for about eight years, but I started my career in Sioux City, Iowa as a one-man sports department. I wrote, shot, produced, edited, and anchored two sportscasts a night. And I saw early on the benefits of that, having control over the product, having a certain amount of creative freedom. And when I moved to my second job, that was in Buffalo, New York, and I started to see even more benefits of working alone. I was technically a sports reporter, but when the Buffalo Sabres, the hockey team, made the Stanley Cup playoffs, I got to travel with our crew. And it wasn't because I was the main sports guy, because I wasn't. I was uh, definitely far down the totem pole, but I could shoot the main sports guy's live shots and do feature pieces on the side. My bosses knew they could get a two-person presence by only sending two people, not four people, not sending two traditional reporters and two traditional photographers. They were able to send two people and get a two-person on-air presence as well. So that was when I really started seeing how the life of a solo video journalist could really be a fruitful one. And in 2008, my parent company at the time, Gannett, uh, now called Tegna, but back in 2008, Gannett owned both the TV stations, like the one that I worked for, and a variety of newspapers. And they were looking for one-person crews to go to the political conventions and provide video stories for the websites of our newspapers. And I was called upon to do that, and I wound up in Denver covering the Democratic National Convention in 2008, roughly 50 feet from Barack Obama when he accepted the nomination for president. Uh, Soon after that, I moved to Atlanta, where I am now, again, been there eight years, and I'm one of more than a dozen solo video journalists on the staff. I have received tremendous opportunities because of that. I've covered three Olympic Games. I was at the inauguration this year in D.C., and I just got back a few months ago from the Super Bowl in Houston covering the Falcons. And I can honestly say I don't think I would have received any of those opportunities if I did not have the versatility and flexibility 
of filling so many roles. And that's been a real important guiding uh, light throughout my career, just having that flexibility and being willing to take on various roles, constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to develop new skills to make myself a more valuable employee. And it has led to a lot of successes, both in terms of awards and honors, and obviously the opportunities to cover some truly monumental and global stories. And what you've just, I mean, obviously your background definitely kind of leads into a lot of um, kind of thoughts about why this book, why you chose to write this book, um, just your your own experiences and the shifts in the industry. Um, so we might as well kind of dive in because you, you led into that so well, I couldn't have asked <laughs> for it to <laughs> kind of flow any better. Um, so, you know, given your experience, um, you know, what was the initial inspiration, you know, to ha- to write this book and maybe kind of context and when you started writing it as well? Well, I started writing it uh, a little more than two years ago at this point in the winter of 2015. And at that point, I had experienced a certain amount of success nationally uh, for solo video journalism. I had won uh, some national awards and had developed a certain uh, reputation for this subject, but I also had been wanting for quite a few years to take on the project of writing a book and never really had a subject crystallized in my head that would make the perfect book subject. So many things that I wanted to write about, I felt, well, it's either been done before or it could be done much more concisely than in a book that spans many, many pages. But I saw the opportunity to write about this topic specifically, and it made perfect sense because it's basically the book that I wish that I had when I was starting out in the business. I began at a time where social media was not nearly as prevalent as it is today. Video on the internet was not nearly as prevalent as it is today. And solo video journalism as a career path was not nearly as fleshed out as it could have been. And sadly, that's still the case today. While so many things in our industry have changed and solo video journalists have become more and more popular, like we talked about before, there really isn't enough guidance for young solo video journalists to understand what a career like that looks like, the possibilities that can come with such a career, and the basic challenges and techniques to solve those challenges that come with doing it all by oneself. So I saw a need there and I've been compelled to do as much giving back and teaching and training as I can. Um, Again, I think that comes with having some success and getting some experience in the business. It is incumbent on those of us who want to see the craft of journalism passed along and, and elevated throughout the industry. I think it is incumbent upon us to try to do whatever we can to help those coming behind us. And that was really my main impetus for writing the book. I wanted to give young journalists today what I didn't necessarily have when I came out of college and also some kind of a guidepost for what a career at this position can look like. As I say in the book, it doesn't have to be a stepping stone. It can be your whole path. And I think so many people look at the idea of You know, so many young reporters who want to be on the air and they want to report, they look at the idea of shooting and editing 
as a bit beneath that position. And I think what I have seen, both in my own experience and in those of other solo video journalists, is that by having that flexibility, by knowing how to do it all, you really can achieve so much of what you want to achieve in this business. Again, I, you know, I ran through the opportunities that I've received that I wouldn't have been able to take on if I didn't know how to do, quote, it all. And I think it's so important for young journalists to realize there is a lot of potential here, but you have to take it seriously. And this book is an effort to provide that guidance, to provide those techniques to young journalists to enable them to thrive in this current environment. Yeah, and before we kind of go into kind of looking at some of the individual sections of the book, um, one question that I had was, did you, um, were there things that you uh, wanted to include that you didn't, or did you find it hard to select what to include and what to leave out um, in such a book? No, I really, I was very happy with what I was able to include in the book, and, and I tried to cover it as comprehensively as I could. I designed the book for the most part chronologically as it relates to a day in the life of a solo video journalist. So the first section is all about shooting video. The second section, uh, or rather the first section is all about preparation. The second section is all about shooting video. And then the third section is all about the writing and editing process. So that was never really a challenge for me in terms of figuring out what to include. I think the big challenge for me, and, and it already, and I see it happening now, is how to create a relevant text that will work for college students and young journalists not just now, not just in 2017, but in 2020, in 2023, as the landscape in journalism continues to change. So I think there were certain chapters where I could have gotten a little more granular, but I decided to back away from that for more broader pieces of advice that can apply uh, down the line. I think the social media chapter is the biggest example of this. It is so difficult to try to pin down what social media will be effective, both in terms of developing an audience and making money for your station or your, uh, your media outlet. So I try to offer more general advice that people can then apply to individual social media platforms. And I think that's the big trick with any book is in this environment today, it is, you know, things move so quickly, but also information gets shared so quickly. And I wanted to create a book that had a certain sense of timelessness, even though the landscape keeps shifting. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a balance um, to, to try to strike. It, that It is such a fast-moving or fast-changing um, industry that, you know, sometimes you may feel by the time you've written the book, you're like, oh, <laughs> is, is that still true any longer? But I think I like how you describe kind of not going so granular um, and being able to get some of those concepts there. Um, one thing, I, looking at the different sections of the book and the chronological approach that you took, um, would you say, you know, it, would you be able to prioritize what what things are the most important things for a journalist to think about, um, you know, as if they're preparing for this type of approach of being a solo journalist and doing all of these things, if they had to put all their efforts one spot um, initially? Is there anything you could prioritize there? I think time management is one of the overarching qualities that makes every other step easier. If you're a young journalist, and I can say this 
from my days as a young journalist, the most difficult part for me was feeling like I had so many responsibilities and not being quite sure if I could get it all done in the time that I had. And I've always been a big believer in organizing my day and scheduling and keeping a to-do list. So that was very early on my list of things to do in my career was to figure out, well, how am I going to designate the time for X if I know I have to do Y and I know I have to do Z after that? And so the first chapter of the book is all about that because so much of what we do in the field as journalists contains variables. Our stories change when we get there. We have to be able to be in a space where we can respond to our interviewees when they answer our questions. We need to be able to be active in the moment with the people we're interviewing. We need to be able to be able to have conversations with them, not just a, a prearranged list of questions. And you're not going to be able to do that if you're too worried about what you have to do next or if you're wondering if you have enough of a charge on your battery, on your camera, uh, or if you're wondering if your mic has a certain amount of feedback. So the big thing that I encourage early on in the book in the first chapter is to really make an effort to learn how to manage your time and develop systems to eliminate variables. So I am a big fan of back-timing my day. So if I know a story has to run at five, then I try to subtract from there. So, okay, it takes me 30 minutes to edit a story, then I, I probably need to start editing at around 4.30. And then that means I probably need to start writing at around 3.30. And that means I need to start logging at around 2.45. And I work my way back. And that way, when I'm actually in the process during the day, it all feels a little more manageable. So again, the big thing I think for young journalists is to try to eliminate every variable they can outside of the story, because within the framework of covering the story, it's going to be filled with variables and you're going to want to be able to respond to those. Yeah, that's a valuable lesson for any industry, the time management piece. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're, we're always learning. I think all of us are always learning how to do that better. Um, one other aspect that I um, wanted to ask you about, too, because being a solo video journalist, there's a certain, um, you know, comfortability that uh, journalists would have to have with the tools that would be required, especially, you know, video camera. Um are there any, I mean, I, your text is for, you know, quite a wide range of, um, you know, journalists at different levels. Is there any kind of first step you would give to, a, you know, student journalist or new journalist and how to become more comfortable with video um, and with the tools that are required for that? Well, I think the first thing, especially for students, is to get involved as much as you can with your college TV station with classes that enable you to take out cameras. It is so much easier for college students and even high school students than it was even just 15 years ago when I was in school. And that is so, so important. The more and the faster you can learn the basics of the camera, the better you will be able to then be at expanding upon those basics. I interviewed someone once, I have a podcast of my own where I interview people in my industry and try to get their advice for young journalists, and I interviewed a photographer once who said he always encouraged the license plate drill, 
where he would tell someone just starting out, or he would do this when he was starting out, would take his camera out to the parking lot of the station, pick a, pick a vehicle, and try to figure out 10 to 15 different shots that he could get of the license plate of that vehicle. And it's such a good training exercise because it forces you to really have to think about, A, how to be creative, but B, how to get variety in your shots. And that's such an important thing for young journalists is I think a lot of times people arrive onto the scene of something and they're not really sure how to show one scene from a variety of different ways. But if you can do it with a license plate, you can probably do it with a scene in the field. And that's a big, big lesson, I think, is just to get as much experience as you can. I've said many times that as much as I appreciated my college experience, my abilities as a photographer greatly picked up once I got into the business and started doing it every day. And there's no substitute for doing it every day. But it's important to take those opportunities when you're in college to try to get as much of a basic education as you can with the camera. And then when you get into the industry, to really make it a point of not just trying to hit your deadline every day, but also trying to learn something in the process, try a new technique, try to get a different kind of shot. Watch other people's work, too, when you're not in the middle of something. And that is the beauty of young journalists coming up today is that there is a never-ending supply of storytelling, visual storytelling online that you can just go to a station's website, find people whose work you admire, and watch it and learn from it, dissect it, break it down. So I think there are a lot of things people can do to get a sense of what, quote, good video looks like. But I think in terms of actually getting to know the camera, it's important just to spend time and use it and go through everything you can and figure out what you like and what you don't and what you can build upon. Kind of going into the next element, uh, in, with the book being solo video journalist, a lot of people are thinking more of that visual um, emphasis. Um, but what about sound and how important is sound in this um, piece? And it, it may be the piece that people are le- lesser familiar with, I would guess. Yeah, and it's such an important part because sound is what places you in an environment, really, I think. If you think about just the idea of surround sound and when you're watching something that and have that surround sound experience or when you're in a movie theater and you feel just enveloped in audio. The video is on the screen in front of you, but the audio is all around you. And you think about how important that is in putting you in the world of whatever you're watching, whether it is a movie or something on a TV. And... What's interesting to me as someone who watches the work of a lot of young journalists, I'm asked regularly to critique people's work, I judge competitions, and it is striking to me how few journalists really seem to be focusing on audio when they edit their stories. Uh, It's actually, I think, an issue more in the editing rather than the shooting because when you edit a story, you've got your typically two audio layers. You've got your vocal layer, which is your voice and the voice of whoever you interviewed for a story. And then there is the second layer, which is the natural sound in the background. And I am so constantly surprised with how many people just leave that second part down or out to the point where it just sounds like a person's voice 
in an audio booth. It doesn't sound like a person in that environment. And audio is such a critical factor to that feeling of immersion that it's so important for people to get it right. But again, when you're starting out and when you're learning so many new things, audio can seem like a secondary factor, right? If you don't get audio on the air, people might notice, but if you don't get video on the air, everyone will notice. So I think a lot of people put audio uh, to the side when they're starting out, but it really is such an important, uh, such an important facet of a great story. And, and that's very true. And it, like, um, like I said, everybody, it, it needs the, obviously the visual needs to be the priority. Um, but that just for the impact of it, but the, you lose that storytelling ability if that sound isn't there. Um, looking at the structure of your book, one of the interesting, um, things that you had were in each chapter, um, or each section was a section called break, break one, break two. Um, and I was yes. just curious, um, why you kind of inserted a different, you know, a, a little bit of a different text into each of those. Yeah. And that is part of, for me, breaking up the chronology. There were a few uh, elements of the solo video journalism world that I wanted to include, but didn't quite fit in with the chronology of doing a story in a day. So those break sections are shorter chapters and they are focused on topics that are more uh, that are more external, let's say, to the storytelling process. So in one chapter, I interviewed Mike Castellucci, who worked at WFAA-TV in Dallas and is widely regarded in the industry as a solo video journalist who shoots with his iPhone and does stories that are compelling and good features with his phone. So that's not going to be something that most journalists in working newsrooms will do, but I wanted to at least show people what that looks like and that that is possible and that in many ways, using smaller cameras like iPhones and GoPros, which is something that I do regularly, that is very much part of the future of what we do. And it's doable as a solo video journalist. So it was important for me to have that chapter in the book. The second break chapter, I interview Peter Rosen, who is one of the best feature reporters in the country. And he won a feature reporting award, a national award, the same year he was fired from his job. And a few years later... He decided to get back into business as a solo video journalist, not as a traditional reporter. And he is now one of the top solo video journalists in the country. I regularly find myself competing with him for uh, awards in competitions. He's outstanding. He works out in Utah. And so that chapter was about getting in at an older age because I think the audience for this book is mostly younger journalists, students, and those just starting out. But for many people in their 40s and 50s, who have been traditional reporters, they are now being asked to make that move, to make that move to become a solo video journalist. And I think it's important to show that that is very much possible and doable and achievable. And the third break chapter was with Boyd Hooper, who is a traditional reporter, and he, I would say, is the best feature reporter on the planet. And that chapter is all about the importance of learning from the best. Even though my title is Solo Video Journalist, even though the book I wrote is called The Solo Video Journalist, I'm a big believer in learning from everyone. And Boyd Cooper is an incredible writer. He has an incredible eye, even though he doesn't shoot any of his own stories. 
And he has tremendous lessons about collaboration that while I might not be able to collaborate with someone in the field, I can use those lessons and translate them to the solo lifestyle. So those great chapters exist in the book to provide that extra bit of context, that extra bit of depth to a book that otherwise is very much about the storytelling process. Well, and that kind of gets at uh, the next question um, I had, and it's, and this kind of connects to, I think, the um, talking about Boyd Hoopert um, is the writing element of this. You know, we've talked about the visual, the sound, but there's also the kind of the unseen, but it, the writing <laughs> that supports um, all of these other pieces as well. Could you say a little bit more about the element of writing? in video journalism? Absolutely. I, I say in the book that writing is the most important ingredient uh, to any story because it really is what elevates the material that you have into something digestible and into something that can really move a person. And that, for me, was such a critical part of how I really jump-started in my career is by really focusing on the writing, because that was that was really where I stood out early. I wasn't the best shooter. I had never really intended on being uh, predominantly a shooter and an editor in my own work when I started out in the business, but I knew that was where the business was going, and I knew how much passion I had for writing. So I really leaned on that early on, and I think there is no substitute for a story that has words that reach a person's heart and reach their soul. It is just so critical. And, you know, and I'm, I'm having trouble actually answering this question in a way that is succinct because I just think there is so much you could say about how important it is. But I think in terms of writing as a solo video journalist, I think the biggest lesson that I try to impart to people is that there is so much of that that can be done in the field. And writing doesn't just have to begin when you sit down at your computer when you get back from your shoot. It starts in the field. The benefit of being a solo video journalist is that you can do it all in your head. So if you see a beautiful shot and you have an idea of how to write to that, you can pencil that in in your mind in the field. And you don't have to wait until you look at all the video to see what the photographer got because you are the photographer and you know what you got. So that's a big part of it for me, and, and that really applies to every step. I, I try to say in the book how each step really informs each other step, and you should be writing in your head while you're shooting video. You should be thinking about how you'll edit the story while you're shooting video. You should be writing in a way where you'll know how you'll edit to what you're writing. Um, the person who I interviewed in the book about editing, his name is Forrest Sanders, also very, very talented solo video journalist, he talks about how when he sits down to edit, there is rarely a line in his script where he doesn't know what video is going to go with it. And I think that's a very important thing to take away, is that using the autonomy or using, the, using your autonomy to your advantage is so critical. And the way you do that is by combining steps, writing while you're shooting, editing while you're writing. It really illustrates how this is a process that goes from, even though you have a chronology of 
you know, this comes first, this comes second. Um, I think you do a good job of making sure everybody is aware that you, even though you may be preparing, you can think about what you may be writing or you may be shooting, but you have, you're in your head, even though you're not physically writing it down, um, those thoughts that you're having, um, make sure you keep track of them because they'll be part of that process. And I think that's an advantage that solo video journalists actually have. I think people typically look at solo video journalists as being uh, at a disadvantage compared to traditional crews. And in some cases, that's the case. But there are a lot of situations, and I try to show as many as I can in the book, a lot of situations where you really can take advantage of the fact that you are your own boss and you don't have to – uh, convince a photographer to shoot a certain shot or to edit a certain shot. And on the photography side, you don't have to worry about getting a whole variety of shots and wondering what the reporter might want to use. You can really streamline the process. And I think that's a big thing and something that a lot of solo, solo video journalists might take for granted and might not realize that they can do with more efficiency than their traditional counterparts. And you can you could truly see your vision through, you know, if you, you if you see all these pieces, um, you instead of them being handed off to, you know, somebody separate, an editor um, or somebody that's going to manage the audio, you you're truly controlling your story, which is, you know, like you said, wasn't always the case and how um, video and broadcast journalism functioned. There's a little bit more control you have over your content. Potentially. Exactly. Um, so kind of a, a bigger picture than looking at some of the individual chapters. Um, the book reads a little bit more, um, not entirely like a memoir, but, you know, a little bit more personal than some other <laughs> texts in this area may be. And um, how did you decide on that style or approach to um, writing this book in that way? <laughs> well, it's definitely not a memoir because it, if it was, it wouldn't be a very good one. <laughs> Would it be a but lot longer? I think. <laughs> <too>? <laughs> oh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I do believe in the power of example, mm-hmm. and I can uh, I can testify to that from my own experience as a young reporter. In fact, in one of the chapters, I talk about how during that time at my first job in Iowa, I was struggling because I had felt like I had hit a wall in terms of my own work, and I knew that there had to be examples that I could learn from. There had to be great visual stories out there, visual storytellers out there whose work that I just wasn't able to see because back in the mid-2000s, social media wasn't that big, and video was not as prevalent online as it is today. Today, if I do a story that runs at 6 o'clock on Tuesday evening, it'll be online at 6.05, the video will be online. But back in the mid-2000s, that wasn't really an option. So I felt like I had reached a ceiling, and I write in the book about how it was really reading a written article by Bill Plasky of the LA Times that actually inspired me and really motivated me from a writing standpoint. It didn't really help me necessarily from a shooting and editing standpoint, but that was all I could really rely on at the time. I, I had to go off the written word because... That was so much more prevalent, and that was so much easier to find. So for me, the power of example is so important, especially for young journalists. And it's not just in the work that they produce. So it's not just in 
seeing a story that I might do or seeing a story that Boyd Cooper might do and learning from that. That's definitely part of it. But I think it's also seeing the example of how a career looks like, how a career looks in this field as a solo video journalist. So I tried to make my text as personal as it can be, and not just with my own stories, but with the stories of the other solo video journalists who I interview in the book, because I think it's so important for people just starting out to get a clearer vision of what things might look like, get a better roadmap for this field. And it's like we talked about earlier, putting Peter Rosen's story in there as an older solo video journalist uh, getting started. That to me is critical so that people of that age can understand what it looks like to enter the solo video journalism world at that age. And that for me was, was such an important part of the text. I've read plenty of textbooks that are all about techniques and logistics, and they can be both very dry and sometimes feel unrelatable. My biggest advantage as an author in this space is that I'm currently living this experience, and I have access to people who are currently living this experience, and I can describe that lifestyle in a way that someone outside the business simply can't because they're not living it every day. So that was my goal in putting a lot of personal stories in there. And again, not just mine, but those of the other journalists, because I wanted to show you can do this in Atlanta. You can do this in San Diego. You can do this in the Twin Cities. There are so many opportunities and so many rewards that come with this lifestyle. I wanted to put in as many examples as I could of folks who have seen that. And, uh, you know, thinking about all the different concepts that you cover in this book and it, it's there's a lot in here for it being a relatively manageable book I mean which is kind of nice it's chock full of information but it's not four, 400 pages long um, as some <laughs> some um, you know video and journalism texts may be um, so it's very accessible I would say um, but you know given the different concepts from you know the visual element to um, editing and writing and audio, those are all things that are would be somewhat familiar to people that were new to video journalism. Um, they would have kind of something to relate to. Um, are there any concepts um, that you would say that um, you felt like you needed to explain a little bit more to those who weren't familiar? And I guess one that stood out to me was potentially the um, – task of logging or the concept, that concept? Are there, there any things that you felt like you had to spend more time with for those that may not be as familiar with the field? Well, it's interesting uh, that you asked that because when I finished the first draft of the text, I sent it to four different people. Two of them were working journalists and two of them were people with no knowledge of the industry. One of them was my wife, who only really knows what, uh, what I tell her about in, uh, you know, when we're sitting down at dinner. So I wanted those multiple perspectives because I know that for people who are already in the business, a lot of it will seem, uh, or at least a lot of the, the very basic concepts will seem routine, will seem easy to understand, and then they can move on to the uh, deeper concepts in the book. But especially for student journalists, I... I figured that 
they're probably only putting together stories once a week, maybe, uh, if they're lucky, probably more realistically once a month. And I wanted to make sure that I explained the concepts on a level that they could grasp as well. Logging is an interesting one because, as I say in the book, it is both an important part of the process, but also the most collapsible, removable part of the process. And it is something where if you're on a breaking news story and you've only shot five, ten minutes of video, you probably don't need to log every second of it. And logging, the basic definition is basically transcribing all of the video and all the interviews that you've shot. So it allows you to have a nice little index of all of the sound bites that you might want to use, of all of the shots that you might want to use, so that when you start writing, you can have something visually that you can look at. Because obviously with video, it's tough to do that as well. So that's what logging is, but when you're in the field and on a breaking news story, it can be very difficult to find the time for that when you know you're up against a hard deadline and there's so many variables. And if you haven't shot a lot of video, you probably don't need to go to such painstaking efforts to remember what you have. But especially for longer stories, but I would say pretty much every story I do that's not a breaking news story, I log as much as I can. And the reason I do that is because I want to be able to write around the sound bites that I've obtained. And I don't want it to, I don't want my words to duplicate someone else's words. I want to be able to flow in and out of them. And in TV, you really have an economy of words. And that's the case with really every, uh, every form of journalism, I think, but especially in television where you generally have 90 seconds and there's only so much anyone can say in 90 seconds. And the constant refrain you hear from journalists is, oh, I wish I had more time to include this or that or the other thing. So logging becomes so important because it allows you to make your writing more efficient. If your line is Smith was arrested but said he didn't do it, and then you hear Smith saying, I didn't do it, well, then you've just completely duplicated what the person then said. I didn't need to say Smith says he didn't do it because Smith is about to say that, right? Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that don't seem like much, but they save valuable seconds. And in TV, pretty much every second is valuable because generally you only get 90 of them. <laughs> So thinking kind of uh, along the same lines of, you know, something that may have been a little bit more challenging for, uh, you know, the a solo journal, video journalist to think about, um, when you were writing this book, was there a chapter or a section that was the most challenging for you to kind of get down or get started on? I think the chapters on shooting were the most difficult to write because it's so tough to represent visuals as words. And thankfully, uh, I had a great interview subject for the chapter, and, and I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but for each chapter in the book, I interview a different nationally renowned solo video journalist. And that person kind of helps me break down the process of each step. So for this 
uh, for the chapter on shooting B-roll or the video that's not your interviews, I interviewed Ann Hurst, who is a tremendously talented solo video journalist out of Denver. In fact, she was just named the NPPA's National Solo Video Journalist of the Year. Tremendously talented and uh, someone whose work I just love watching. And it's difficult to replicate what she does with the camera <laughs> into paragraphs. It's just, you know, that's the fundamental difference between TV news and print news. So I think those were the chapters that I struggled with the most, especially a chapter like that that is so important. And also because when you're shooting a story, and this is the case for any part of the process, but it's very difficult to break it down to a formula. And no two stories are the same. No two scenes are the same. And it's difficult to try to condense exactly how one should shoot a story when there is no one story that will look the same as it will the next day. So those were, I think, the challenges, but much like with the social media chapter where I tried to give more of a broader view on things, I definitely got more granular with Anne in the shooting B-roll chapter. But again, I tried to focus on broader concepts, the things that I generally find are missing from most stories that young journalists do. So, for example, the concept of sequencing is a very basic one that a lot of young journalists just don't learn. And sequencing is essentially shooting one moment from a variety of vantage points. So if I'm shooting a scene of two people talking to each other, then I try to shoot multiple shots of that happening. So I'll shoot a very wide shot, which establishes where these two people are. It shows the setting. Maybe they're in a park. Then there's a medium shot where you see both people maybe from the waist up. But you're not really getting those tight reaction shots yet. But then you do. And you get those tight shots of one person's face as she's looking at the other person. The other person reacting to the first person. And that's how you sequence the story. But a lot of times people just don't do that. And they don't shoot that way. And as a result, as a viewer watching a story like that, it can be difficult to understand exactly where I am, just the visual space in which the story is taking place. So I really tried to talk about things like sequencing because it's a simple step and it's a digestible step that makes stories infinitely more understandable and manageable, both from the reporter's standpoint of having to find video and put it all together but also from the viewer's standpoint, it is much more digestible to watch a story that is shot in sequences because it allows the viewer to understand the space in which that story is happening. Very true. Um, I was um, kind of, as we start to wrap up here, one of the things that I, um, what kind of struck me is, you know, with the assumption with a, a book that's the solo video journalist, you kind of see this lone <laughs> lone person, you know, working and, you know, just like handing something over, like here, this goes, goes on the air, you know, that they're not, there's not um, as much collaboration or process, you know, involvement of others in the process. But I was, you know, in looking at, especially your last um, chapter um, about thinking big um, in looking forward, um, you do talk and you're, you kind of model this in your book by talking with, many others in the field, many other professionals, 
and have many different voices as a part of this um, this text. But how much um, you know, seeking feedback, asking for help, um, looking for role models. It's not even though solos in the title. This is definitely not a solitary endeavor <laughs> um, by any means. Um, and I think you model that in the text, but you also kind of give some good advice, although it's not called here's, you know, tips and advice, um, that chapter, it really kind of emphasizes how important those connections with others are. Yeah. And I mentioned already, you know, just my desire early in my career to learn from other people's work. And that's, that's part of it, right? But it's also using the people around you at your station, even if you don't necessarily go out into the field with one of them. I'll give you an example. Uh, currently, I'm learning how to use After Effects, the uh, the effects program that is becoming pretty popular among editors. And I am someone who uses graphics a lot in my more database stories. And I saw what After Effects was able to do for some of my colleagues. So I asked my boss first if I could have access to the software and, and learn it and get good at it. I got approved to do that. And then, I mean, I'm constantly reaching out to the two or three other real experts in my newsroom who know how to really make After Effects sing, and I'm constantly getting their feedback. And they'll ask me for mine, and it becomes very collaborative. So I absolutely think, yes, solo is in the job title, but I think the, the last thing that a person should do is get hung up on the title of the job. It should not be about confining oneself to one position, especially in this business where flexibility is just so important. Uh, Anne Herbst, uh, to bring her up again, she is someone who was working in a, as a solo video journalist, went to a different station to become a traditional photographer, went back to her old station to become a manager and part-time solo video journalist, part-time traditional photographer. And she was very clear multiple times during our interview how she doesn't like the idea of labels. She doesn't want to be put in some kind of box. She doesn't want to be just known as a solo video journalist. She wants to be a journalist who has the freedom to do any kinds of stories. And that exists in my world, too. I, most of the time, shoot my own stories. But when there are opportunities or when there is a need to have a second person there for whatever role – I am not shy about asking for that because I understand that when there are chances for a second person to make a story better, then that's what I should push for. It doesn't necessarily matter to me if I do it all myself. I want the story to be as good as it can be. It just so happens that for me, knowing how to do so many different things enables me to do the best story that I can do in most situations. But there are times you know, when I sit down and interview politicians, it is much easier to have a second photographer who can set up a reversal camera and then I can set up two or three of my own cameras and then voila, you've got a three or four camera shoot because of you, because of having two people there to do it. So that for me is a big, big part of that. And it's why I, again, it's why I interview so many people throughout the book, but it's also why I emphasize that point at the end about collaboration, because at the end of the day, it's about your work. And the viewer at home is not going to know who shot it, who edited it. They are going to know what they see on television or what they see on Facebook or what they see on the web. 
And that is the work to which I, as a reporter, need to be held responsible and held accountable. So that is what I constantly remind myself. And I will talk to whoever I can to get better at my craft and produce better stories as a whole. And I think this is uh, something that you touch on, I think, probably in each section. Um, but how important is um, the concept of preparation um, in, you know, being a solo video journalist? Yeah, it is kind of the primary step. Um, and I mentioned that in the chapter about time management. I, I think it's so important to prepare both in terms of developing a system for yourself. So knowing where your batteries are every night, knowing where your memory cards every are every night, uh, making sure your car is gassed up. All of these things are very, very important in terms of preparation. But then there is also the part of preparing to do one story before one leaves the newsroom. And this is uh, another thing I, I see crews of all stripes constantly doing is they'll get their assignment and they're gone. They get their assignment and they are out the door. And for a traditional crew, sometimes that can work. But as a solo video journalist, when I am driving, it is very difficult for me to do a lot of the things that a traditional reporter can do in the passenger seat. I can't be looking up phone numbers while I'm driving. I can't be texting and, and making a whole lot of calls while I'm driving. So I take a beat after I get my assignment and I brainstorm. I make phone calls. I write down the phone numbers of people who I might need before I head out the door. And I always feel just a little more prepared and the story always feels just a little more manageable when I do that. I preach this for younger journalists because again, the temptation is I got so many things to do. I need to head out the door and get started. I can't waste any time. But for me, taking those five, 10 minutes beforehand ends up saving time and makes things a lot less stressful during the day. So preparation for me works on multiple levels, but that's a very important one that I think a lot of journalists, period, might not be doing as much as they want. That's a great point. Um, you've, you've talked about this kind of since the beginning of our interview, um, and you know, kind of we've talked about it, this being somewhat of a textbook, but when you were writing it, was there... Um, a particular, you know, a specific audience that you initially had in mind that would gain a lot from reading your book? Um, or did you have multiple readers in mind as you're putting it together? I think the biggest focal point for me was that crop of young journalists mm -hmm. uh, just starting out. The students in college who could use this as a textbook in a class. Uh, the young journalists who might be on their first job and feeling like I was on my first job, like they're struggling to find uh, people who can help them solve some of the specific challenges that come with being a solo video journalist. And that's so much of what I try to write about in the book. It's not just the basics and the techniques of shooting, writing, editing. It's doing those things as a one-person crew and the different challenges that are very specific to that lifestyle. For example, when a traditional crew gets to a breaking news scene, let's say there is a fire going on at an apartment complex, and a traditional crew arrives on the scene, the photographer gets a video of the scene, gets crisp, 
powerful video with the expensive camera that will go on the air. And the reporter can pull out her, his phone, and shoot video that can be sent back to the station to go online. Or a video that that reporter can post to social media, Facebook or Twitter. So traditional crews have that ability to split up in those kinds of situations. As a solo video journalist, I've got to make a choice or figure out how to do both. These are the kinds of challenges that I really wanted to address in the book because I think it's something that enough young journalists or not enough young journalists are receiving. So the real audience for me is those younger folks, those folks still in college or at their first job who would be able to really propel their work far forward if they just had a little better guidance as to some of the tricks of the trade. And that's, again, we talked about including examples and including personal experiences. That's another reason for doing that. Because by saying, I was in this situation on the story and this is what I did, hopefully that helps a younger journalist say, okay, so when I'm in that situation or something similar, that's how I can do it. And a big chapter for that is honestly the chapter about fashion and looking the part. I interview Heidi Wigdahl, who is a talented photo or a solo video journalist out of the Twin Cities at Care TV in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And that was a chapter that I knew right away that I wanted in the book. When I started speaking at workshops and conferences, I knew from the beginning that speaking about solo video journalism was not just about showing some of my work and explaining my process. It was also about the, the seemingly superficial things. And again, traditional reporters don't necessarily have to worry about whether their makeup is going to run because they're out sweating while shooting their story all day. That's something that a solo video journalist has to worry about. I never took that part of the job seriously until I saw how it looked on air, and then I took it very seriously. And so chapters like that are very, very important. And again, I didn't know – for me, as, as a man on television, I find that makeup is a very simple process. I have two items that I wear. It takes me about three minutes to put them on. And that's great for me. But I wasn't aware of which two items to use because I had never worn makeup before <laughs> until I was in my mid-20s. So for the early part of my career, that was a variable that I was struggling to control. I, I was very uh, – I went through some very awkward looks on the air because of those issues. And now I don't have to worry about that and I can focus on my story. So if there is a 21 or 22-year-old journalist starting out – who has no clue what makeup looks good on air or what clothes they can buy on a young journalist's budget that they can then wear out. Those are the kinds of questions that I try to answer. I, I try to provide that perspective for male solo video journalists, and Heidi does a really good job of giving insight uh, for the women who read this book. And by the way, that's another thing that uh, I really wanted to emphasize in the book, trying to make sure that I was – including as many different perspectives as I could in the book. I just uh, conducted a survey, actually, for my blog about solo video journalists, where I heard from nearly 100 about what they think of the job, whether they see themselves doing the job in 10 years, what aspects of the job they like. And I learned that there was a vast gender, gender gap between how men looked at the job and how women looked at it. And in just about every metric... Men preferred 
being solo video journalists far more than women did. And I think there's something to that because most photography conferences that people go to or most photographers who speak at conferences, when you, when you look at these lineups, it is almost predominantly male. And I wanted to make sure that especially on chapters like One About Fashion, there is no way that I'm going to be able to properly advise a woman on how to dress for this job. And I needed a different perspective for that. I interviewed Anne uh, as someone who, again, is she is a constant advocate for women in photojournalism. In fact, she runs a conference about it. And I knew that those were voices I wanted to have. So I wanted to make sure that I produced a text that worked for really anyone starting out in this field. I mentioned, you know, obviously it's really aimed at young journalists, but I wanted that perspective of an older journalist in there. And that part of, of inclusivity was very important for me, writing this book. Well, I was going to just kind of ask you to kind of to wrap up, um, you know, what you were, what you're working on now and this, the survey that you did, um, is that part of a, a new project or um, was it gathered for other, you know, to, for your guidance, um, just kind of in the industry? <laughs> Well, for me, the subject of solo video journalism has been a passion for these last few years. I mentioned that my reason for writing the book was in part because of that desire to give back and to help not just my own work, but the craft as a whole. So that was produced uh, ostensibly for my weekly blog about storytelling that I put out. And I have a podcast that goes with that. Uh, it's called the Telling the Story blog and the Telling the Story podcast. Uh, and that survey was a big talker. Again, I heard from nearly 100 people, and when I put out the results of the survey, it immediately became one of the most popular stories on my blog, which has been around for four years, one of its most popular stories ever. And I heard from people who sent the results to their news director or sent it out to their whole newsroom, and I, I thought that was very important. So I'm constantly trying to do work like that and uh, the book I'm, I'm you know, promoting as much as I can. I'm speaking at the, uh, the BEA conference in Las Vegas uh, in April. I'll be on a panel about MMJs there, uh, solo video journalists there. And mostly uh, I'm just trying to continue to produce great work and trying to do the kinds of stories that, uh, that show what can be done as a solo video journalist. Loving the job that I have and trying to do the best that I can in it. Well, it sounds like you've got some great resources for people to continue to engage in this topic of solo video journalism um, through your blog and through your podcast as well. Um, and and we'll keep engaged. You can keep engaged with that topic in those ways. So, I, Matt, I wanted to thank you for your time today, um, and I hope that. Um, our listeners will keep connecting with you and following you in different ways on this project. Um, and if you have another book coming out, <laughs> maybe based on your <laughs> blog or based on your podcast um, um, findings and discussions, we'll, we'll have you back again. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>